Hello, and welcome to the Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. Welcome. First, I'll be talking to Matt Bellany about the horrific Alec Baldwin accident on the set of Rust in New Mexico, and the big sci-fi release Dune, and what the movie might signal about the film industry's post-pandemic business model. Then William D. Cohan swings by to talk about Donald Trump's new SPAC. How do you know when the SPAC craze has gone bananas? When Donald Trump launches Truth, where you can truth and retruth the truth. Bill can explain why the deal is bullshit and maybe worse. These are the great sort of conversations you can only have with expert insider reporters who really know what's going on. I hope you enjoy the powers that be. Joining me now in the powers that be is Matt Bellany, our veteran expert on all things Hollywood. The big story this week, Matt, is not in Hollywood. It's in New Mexico, where Alec Baldwin discharged a prop gun and killed uh, cinematographer Helena Hutchins, wounded director Joel Souza on the set of Rust, a $7 million low-budget indie. Before going into what's the latest, because there's a lot of fast-moving parts happening here, but can you just like take us back real quick to that day and, and just sort of describe the incident as we know it? Sure. We got a bunch of new information this week from the uh, sheriff in Santa Fe and some of the other authorities investigating this. What appears to have happened is that it was a rehearsal for a scene that would have featured Alec Baldwin pointing the gun towards the camera. And what apparently happened is that for reasons that we do not know yet, there was a live round in the gun. There had been some complaints, as we know, about some of the safety protocols on set. We had the unionized crew actually walking off the set, some of them earlier that day. This was an inexperienced assistant director who was in charge of giving the gun to Alec Baldwin. His name's Dave Halls. There was an armorer who was the person on a set in charge of weaponry, Hannah Gutierrez, who was also very inexperienced and had had some complaints about her on a, on a past film. Everything conspired here, mistake after mistake, it appears, to have a loaded weapon given to Alec Baldwin for rehearsal of a scene where a gun was pointed in the direction of the camera and the, the director of photography and the director of the film. The gun went off. We know that the lead bullet was recovered from the shoulder of the director. Um, presumably, either that bullet or another one was the one that killed the director of photography. And that's where we are. When this happened, I feel like you, me, you know, anyone in this country who saw the headlines, one of their first reactions was, how does this happen on a movie set in the era of, you know, CGI and special effects and all of the things you can do in post-production, you know, especially after... Uh, Brandon Lee was famously killed on the set of The Crow back in 1993 by a discharge of a gun. Like, why is this still happening on sets? Why are there lead bullets in guns on sets? Why is there a staff member <laughs> on a movie called an armorer? Like, why? Like, I, I just feel like that is something that feels kind of obsolete. But tell me why I'm wrong. Well, a couple things there. I mean, first of all, the Brandon Crow shooting is a good place to start because after that happened, there were a number of protocols put in place that were designed to prevent it from ever happening again, including specific responsibility for people who are handling weapons, who are 
you know, placing the, the guns in front of the actors, things like that, to make sure that it didn't happen again. You know, obviously, the safety protocols were very lax on this set. It seems like every day some new horrible detail comes out about whether people were leaving the guns unattended or whether there were complaints against so-and-so for, uh, you know, oversight of the guns on a previous movie. A bunch of people screwed up, it seems here. And, you know, the question is who will ultimately be responsible? But you ask the CGI question, yes, you can replicate a gun firing via CGI. Some filmmakers don't like that because it doesn't look as real as the real thing. And that costs money. It doesn't cost that much money. But the exact kind of movie that would not use CGI is this kind of movie, which is a scraped together $7 million independent production that has been financed through multiple different ways, overseas pre-sales, you know, uh, a bonding company, like a bunch of random financiers. This is not the kind of movie that typically would have the budget for CGI at all, much less something that could be replicated in real life. If there was a lead bullet in the gun, why is it called a dummy round? Like I've never been on a set with a gun before. What, what does that mean? Sometimes there are blanks where there is a, it, you know, it looks like a bullet, but it's a blank. Sometimes they have a little hole in them to denote that and you fire it and it just is a blank. And sometimes filmmakers can like those types of bullets because they look real or they look more real than like a different kind of projectile or not having a bullet in the chamber at all. Don't forget, this was a shot that was supposed to show the gun going off. So it would make sense that they would want that to look as real as possible. But the fact that the investigators found about 500 casings on set shows that there was no real oversight over the weaponry. And, you know, there have been some reports that people were shooting off guns or at least were seen, uh, you know, playing around with the guns. Like, it doesn't seem like the protocols that are in place from the guilds here. This is a union issue, largely. The union rules govern what goes on on sets. It doesn't seem like those rules were followed. I also, when this happened, went quickly to the internet to see, you know, who else is in this movie? Like, Alec Baldwin's on set. And as we've been talking about, it's a low-budget movie. He's the only bold-faced name, I think, involved in this production. Why was Alec Baldwin involved in this movie? Like, what caught his eye do you know well this happens a lot you know he had a previous experience with the filmmaker and he you know typically when you have the opportunity to produce as an actor uh, which he is a producer on this film and that could be significant down the line you jump at that it could be a passion project i have not read the script but it could be you know something where he wants to work with a particular filmmaker you know there's a lot of different reasons why he would do the movie he might just be wanting a paycheck you know sometimes you know, if it's a $7 million budget, $2 million of that may be going to Alec Baldwin. We don't know. There are dozens of these types of films that get made every year. And they are small. You don't hear about them until they are finished and they're good. And then they sell to a distributor. And then they hit theaters or go to streaming or wherever they go. But, you know, CAA was representing this film. They had planned to sell the, the rights and take it to either a festival or a market. And, you know, it is what it is. You know, I'm more interested now in the liability question. Who will ultimately be responsible? Because the authorities in Santa Fe have said that they are not ruling out any criminal charges. 
um, which is interesting because uh, there was a previous incident where a production assistant named Sarah Jones was killed in an accident uh, involving a train. And in that case, the director actually served jail time. He was in jail for about a year. And there was a civil case brought by her parents against the production. And there was a verdict of about $11 million in favor of the family for wrongful death. So the determination of liability here and who is ultimately responsible is going to be very important. On that note, um, you know, Alec Baldwin is a producer on the film. I mean, who who could be found liable? Will it just boil down to who left the gun on the set or could more people be charged with something here? I think it's different in the criminal and civil context. The authorities in Santa Fe have noted that the standard for criminal charges is actually difficult for them to meet in this case because it they need to show willfulness. You know, is, is this a willful crime or willfully executed? Um, that's a little bit more difficult than simply negligence. And I think that in the civil context, it's going to be much easier to show liability because there are going to be multiple people that could be held liable for uh, causing this unsafe set, for physically handing the gun to Alec Baldwin, which the assistant director, Dave Halls, has said that he did and that he did not properly check to make sure that there was no bullet in it. Anyone who had oversight of this set also could be potentially liable. The production itself, and I haven't seen the contracts, but if there is if there is indemnity or there are oversight requirements, the production itself could be held liable. And, you know, that's often who is sued because they potentially have money here and they do have insurance that may cover the cost of this or at least a portion of the cost. And then don't forget, Alec Baldwin himself is a producer. And obviously, Alec Baldwin has a lot deeper pockets than some of these other people who worked on the movie. So perhaps he could be a defendant in a civil case. We're rewatching 30 Rock here um, in the Venice Bureau of Puck. And I read in the LA Times this week that reminded me Alec Baldwin said he was going to retire from acting after 30 Rock. And that was in 2012. Um, he, he just seems like he keeps going. I mean, he is a he he, he seems like a workaholic, <laughs> actually. Um, you know what? Do you have any idea what's next for him? Like, has he has he said anything about this? Like, where's his where's he at? He's put out some statements and he did an Instagram story, you know, sort of all but blaming, you know, others on the set. And, you know, he's he's a I don't know if you know him at all, but he's kind of a volatile guy. I don't think people are blaming him. We, we have yet to see what his role actually was as a producer on this film, because sometimes that can mean nothing. That can just mean you get a producer credit if you agree to do the film and it helps to get financing and off the ground. Sometimes it can mean that you are very involved. He also had a story credit on the script. So it suggests that he was involved in coming up with you know the film itself and might have a greater oversight on what was going on. We don't know. And as far as what's next, you know, I don't think this film is ever going to get finished. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Yeah, no, it'll, it will never it will. I mean, they said that they are pausing production, but I, I don't think this film will ever get made. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't know what the lasting impact on his uh, on his career will be. The you know, of course, the Don Jr. types of the world are already kind of throwing this in his face, uh, which seems particularly loathsome. 
Yeah, it's pretty gross. You see, the, I saw that there was um, like J.D. Vance, the hillbilly elegy author, tweeted, and he's running for Senate in Ohio in a Republican primary. Uh, you know, I wish Donald Trump was still on Twitter so we could comment on this Alec Baldwin situation. It's just like that. Anyone, anyone talk like using this moment to dunk on Alec Baldwin, like is to use your word, pretty loathsome. That's pretty debased. I mean, the Don, Don Jr. is profiting. He's selling T-shirts that say guns don't kill people. Alec Baldwin kills people. Jesus, like are you that is that is the lowest of the low. God, these are the worst people. Anyway, um, beyond Republican primaries, uh, what, so what's 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 next in your mind on this story? What are you looking for? I think they have to finish the investigation. They said it could take weeks, and you know we'll see what kind of charges are brought. Typically, the criminal charges go first. Um, you know, I saw one of the one of the people on set has hired Gloria Allred as their attorney. I, I don't quite understand that because this is not a civil rights issue. This is a you know. A liability issue for something that happened on set. I don't. I don't know why you hired Gloria Allred, but you know, I'm sure she was probably making calls uh, to people trying to get involved in this. I, I don't. You know, we'll see what the. You know, they're doing investigations. The producers themselves have said that they are doing their own investigation. Um, the authorities are doing theirs. You know, we're going to get a lot more details, and I think day after day we see more coming out and more people speaking out about what they saw. There doesn't appear to be a video of the actual incident. At least the uh, investigators said that they have not recovered one. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to it's going to continue to look bad, very bad. Um, I want to pivot to a movie that has a large budget, (laughs) had a large budget, which is Dune. You said you just saw it. Do you like it? I did. I liked it. You know, it's hardcore sci fi. And if you're not into that thing, you're not going to be into it. But uh, but it's pretty good. I liked it. Is it a movie that like, you know, I don't care for the Marvel movies or whatever, but, you know, I like Game of Thrones. I don't hate sci-fi. I mean, can, can a non-Marvel person see this and come away feeling good? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing, the special effects and the way that they incorporate digital effects with real stuff that's going on. And uh, if you like Star Wars, it, I mean, Star Wars ripped off so much from Dune, from the book. That a lot of it will feel familiar to Star Wars fans. Everything from, you know, battles in the sand to there's an emperor, there's a, a chosen one who has to fulfill his destiny. Like, it's a lot of Star Wars stuff. Um, business-wise, Dune is a fascinating film, too, because, you know, it's got a $160 million budget. It was part of this whole pandemic era push to beef up the streaming services when theaters were closed in a lot of ways. So, you know... This movie debuted in theaters and on HBO Max, which prompted the filmmaker, Denis Villeneuve, to absolutely go nuts and criticize Warner Brothers for doing this. They ultimately paid off the film's backer, a company called Legendary Pictures, which ponied up about 80% of the budget for this movie. They had to pay them off in order to put it on HBO Max, and it debuted in theaters to about $40 million, which... I guess is okay for the pandemic and when the movie's available at home on television, not what this movie would have made if it had debuted only in theaters. And it's made about 225 million so far, probably going to top out at about 275, maybe above that. That is not what you want out of a big budget tentpole movie that you think could do $500 million in the before times before the pandemic. 
But you add in this HBO Max calculus and it's probably driving people over to, to sign up for HBO Max. So what is the value of that? It may be worth it ultimately. This this feels like a movie that can appeal to the sort of popcorn flick Star Wars Marvel person, but also like the film snob. Like you mentioned Denis Villeneuve, like he made Sicario and Arrival. He's making a movie out of Philip Meyer's book or a miniseries about the sun, which is Philip Meyer's it's a great book, great novel about Texas. I don't know. I feel like this movie has something for everyone and Scott Chalamet. <clears throat> I'm not surprised they renewed it. It's for you, clearly. Um, yeah, they just they just said that they're going to do the sequel. I mean, if you watch the movie, it's called Dune Part One, and it was pretty clear that they were going to do a sequel to this. I'm actually kind of surprised they didn't greenlight both parts at the same time. They would have saved money. Um, now they got to reassemble this entire cast to, to get this done. But it took a couple days after the release for them to officially greenlight it. But um, but the value proposition there for Warner Brothers and for Legendary, I think, is pretty high, even without the box office that they thought it would have made pre-pandemic. Um, this is a property that will drive people to theaters. It will drive people to home video. But key to the second one, they've said, is that it will get an exclusive theatrical window. So it's not going to debut on HBO Max the same day as uh, – as this, and presumably when it comes out in 2023, they think we will be past the pandemic. There won't be the excuse that they had for this one. And they will please the filmmaker by giving him that exclusive theatrical window. It's pretty clear that for these big budget tentpole movies, the ideal economic model is to release them exclusively in theaters for a certain amount of time and then put them on streaming or home video or however you want to do it. This pandemic era model of day and date, putting them all on the streaming service the same day as theaters doesn't work financially. What is that window of theater release, do you think? For most studios, it's going to be 45 days. And that is down significantly from 90 days or longer. That was pre-pandemic norms. You know, Universal and some of the others have different models where it's, you know, a few weekends or longer potentially if it does well in theaters. But for the most part, 45 days seems to be the industry standard right now. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. You can still extract a lot of value for streaming after you get that first blast of the box office. Jason Keeler should have talked to you. Should have talked to you, Matt. <laughs> Listen, uh, he's done a lot of things that consumers really like. I think people like being able to watch these movies at home. Um, but you know what? I would like it if they didn't charge me at all. You know, HBO Max should be half the price, and it's not. Sometimes you got to have a business as well as pleasing the consumers. Before I let you go, I had my first in movie theater experience over the weekend. What'd you see? The French Dispatch. <laughs> oh, wow, good for you. Also, Chalamet. It was a very Chalamet weekend for both of us. Yeah, it was. It was. But I, it was more about, in our case, the enormous popcorn, Coca-Cola and movie theater nachos. Um, but it was nice. It felt good. Yeah, I've been going. You know, it's it's it sucks to wear a mask around. But, you know, you find at, when people are eating and, you know, you go to one of those theaters where they serve you food, you don't have your mask on. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, we will talk to Bill Cohan about... Donald Trump, his SPAC, and their plans to challenge CNN, Netflix, Hulu, Twitter, Google, Amazon, Stripe, and destroy them all. Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only the insiders know. The real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. 
Puck's content is great. I mean, it's fantastic. You're listening to my voice on this podcast after all. But we're special for another reason. We're also journalist owned. So when you subscribe to Puck, you're subscribing to our great team, empowering us to do the work that really matters. So check us out at puck.news. Joining me now on the powers that be is our Wall Street expert, Bill Cohan. How you doing, Bill? Great. Thank you for having me. Uh, of course. What I want to talk to you about today is literally what Puck covers, which is the intersection of Wall Street, Hollywood, Washington, and Silicon Valley, which is the Trump Media and Technology Group, TMTG, and DWAC, which is a SPAC, and you're going to explain what all of these things mean. But this is actually a fascinating story. Basically, last week, a SPAC, uh, and you can explain what that is, partnered with Donald Trump to announce a new sort of consortium of a tech company, entertainment company, tech stack company. And it sort of came out of nowhere in the political press. Most people seized on the app, which is going to be called Truth Social, where you can truth and retruth truths uh, in a social media feed that looks suspiciously like Twitter's. But there's lots of other angles to this, which you wrote about inside the Trump meme SPAC clown car was the title of your, your piece about this. But go inside this for us. Can you first explain just like the nuts and bolts of what happened, including what a SPAC is for people who haven't paid attention to this phenomenon over the last year? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be, since I have so much respect for our audience, uh, I would be pretty surprised at this point if they weren't at least tangentially familiar with a SPAC. But a SPAC uh, stands for, uh, you know, Wall Street loves its Argo, its little abbreviations, like like every uh, specialized uh, language. Uh, and that stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company, you know, which is ridiculous. What, basically what it is, is uh, it's a bunch of guys, usually guys, uh, but not exclusively. There certainly are plenty of women who do, who've engaged in this too, um, who call up uh, their favorite uh, investment bank, their favorite lawyers and their favorite accountants. And they say, we want to create, we want to go public. We have nothing but just our reputations and our, our resumes, uh, which are in the uh, S1, which is filed with the SEC. Uh, we we want to go public with this empty company and raise as much money as we can or we think is prudent. In the case of DWAC or whatever we're going to call it, they raised just under $300 million. That's not nothing, obviously, $300 million dollars. Or, you know, the largest SPAC ever done was done by Bill Ackman about a year ago, and that was $4 billion. So, again, it ranges this guy, Mr. Orlando, who did this DWAC SPAC, did another SPAC. This was his, actually his fourth SPAC in January of 2020 for $60 million. So, I mean, basically, most of them are in the kind of $300 million range. And to do that, of course, they have to pay the underwriting fees of the investment bank. They have to pay the lawyers and they have to pay the accountants. So, I mean, we're talking, you know, depending on how big is the function of what you pay an investment bank for raising that money for you is, you know, for this kind of thing is probably in the five, six, seven percent range. So, you know, we're talking, you know, 18 to 20 million dollars that 
the sponsors, these are the people who are raising the money based on their resumes, uh, uh, have to pay. And that's money that they have to pay up front uh, to the banks as part of this fundraising, or they pay at the time that the money is raised. So that's not nothing. So then uh, once they raise the money, then they have two years by the rules of the SPACs to find a company to merge with. And if they don't do that in two years, they have to give the money back that they raised, less the fees that they paid out. So you think, oh, my God, everybody's doing this. Everybody and their brother and sister is doing this. Shaq is doing this. Billy Bean is doing this. You name it. Beyonce is doing this. So and all that's true. It's incredible, but it's true. You couldn't make this up. But if they don't get a deal done, then those sponsors have to eat the, those millions of dollars in fees. So that there is risk to them for that. There is also risk because of the way these things are structured that uh, the uh, shareholders of the SPAC, once it goes public, uh, get to vote on whether they should approve the merger, the company that they want to merge with or buy uh, using the SPAC dollars. And more and more recently, uh, shareholders have said, no, we don't like these crazy cockamamie deals you're doing. We want our money back and they have to give them their money back plus interest. So again, it does seem like by and large uh, a total gravy train for the sponsors and by and large it has been, but there are uh, increasingly there are risks and, you know, like this deal with the Trump cockamamie uh, media company that he's creating, I think creates a lot of risks for the sponsors and the shareholders who buy into this deal once it was announced. So in other words, a SPAC structure is precisely the kind of shady slash risky business deal that Donald Trump would pursue, like Trump University, Trump ties, Trump stakes, <laughs> you name it. Oh, you know what, uh, Peter, it's almost better. It's like he, he couldn't have imagined something this great because, <laughs> you know, with all those other things, he actually had to go, you know, or, or any of his real estate developments, he actually had to go to a bank, a big bank, a Wall Street type bank. And of course, Wall Street stopped doing business with him, you know, after four or five of his companies went bankrupt, in, in, you know, casino companies in, in the 90s. So uh, basically, Deutsche Bank was the only bank on Wall Street that would do business with him. Uh, so he doesn't even have to go to a bank uh, anymore. So banks won't do business with him. So this is even better because they don't have to, he doesn't have to go to the bank. He doesn't have to go to Wall Street. He doesn't have to go to some uh, uh, shadow banking uh, company like he also had done in some of his deals. This he just, quote unquote, merges with the SPAC, can say whatever valuation he wants, essentially, for his, quote unquote, uh, media company that doesn't exist, which he did. You know, he said it was worth $850 million and then potential for another 850 so call it $1.7 So he made that up out of whole cloth. He merges it uh, with this SPAC that's got $293 million sitting there. Uh, and because it's Donald Trump, the stock in the SPAC goes up like tenfold in two days or, or more. I mean, it got up to $175 a share from $10 a share. So we're talking about theater of the absurd. And, you know, uh, the shareholders of the SPAC are, of course, happy unless uh, those that bought in at, you know, $10 a share are happy because now it's like $90 a share. The people who bought at $175 a share on like Thursday 
They're not very happy right now because the stock's at 90. The sponsors, Mr. Orlando, uh, he's very happy because he paid pennies, less than a penny, way, way less than a penny for his stock. Uh, He paid $25,000 for his shares of stock that are now worth something like, you know, 800 million. And Donald is happy, I guess, because he might soon get his grubby little hands on $300 million as well as, you know, having a stock to use to buy other companies if, if he gets that far. But he's not there yet. I do want to talk to you about the potential of that, but Digital World Acquisition Corp is the is the name of the SPAC. And if you if you if you were in before this got announced last Wednesday at ten dollars a share, even if even if they're down a little bit in recent days, you've still uh, increased your your holding by like sixfold or something. So you've got to feel good. Uh, the SPAC is one thing, but the 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 heart of it at the moment is is Trump Media and Technology Group, which you write about. They basically want to. Uh, compete with, you know, CNN, Netflix, and Hulu, uh, and, and create a quote unquote non woke entertainment network. And for context, and they even put this in their investor deck, which you link to in your piece. You know, the, in Netflix's case, at least that's that's two hundred million <laughs> like subscribers. Like that, you it's not an easy thing to build. Um, they also want to create like a tech stack or something like like Amazon cloud services, which seems like a reach for Donald Trump. But like, what are people who have, who, who are the people that bought into this on Thursday and Friday? Are they just like Trump fans who, who want to follow dear leader wherever he goes? Or are they people who actually think this could be a robust company one day? Well, of, of course, uh, you know, I don't have access to um, SEC trading records or uh, whatever exchange this thing uh, is on and trades on. Uh, so I, I don't have an answer for that. Uh, I can, of course, speculate because that's what we do here. Uh, we <laughs> like to speculate, uh, informed speculation. We know for certain that it's not like fans of the sponsors Be- because, you know, Mr. Orlando, you know, his other SPACs haven't done deals. There's three others. This one came out in September, and now it's like a month and a half later, and he's already got a deal. So how he got to Trump or how Trump got to him is still a mystery. But uh, before this deal was announced, the stock was trading below the quote-unquote net asset value of $10 a share, i.e. the value of the cash that was just sitting there. So no one no one who originally bought in the IPO is you know very ex- exci- excited uh, about Mr. Orlando's participation. So that's not what's doing it for him. Uh, so the only thing that can possibly explain the stock literally in two days going from 10 to 175 down to now today about around 90 is that it's just the t- Team Trump, the Trump army that will literally follow him uh, anywhere because they think he's some sort of uh, man who walks on water. It's like they completely ignore his financial foibles which include, as I said, you know, around four or five or six bankruptcies. I mean, ri- literally where, where the stock in the companies went to zero and he stiffed creditors out of billions of dollars. That whole narrative is completely ignored by these people who bought into this. The, the, these are just, you know, the people uh, who will follow Trump to the ends of the earth, who will presumably go to the Capitol and try to prevent Vice President 
Pence from certifying the 2020 election, who will who go to his rallies, who uh, you know don't take vaccines because he doesn't think uh, that they should. So you, you know, we we all are probably one degree or two degrees of separation from people like this. But there's whatever seventy plus million of them that voted for him uh, in uh, the 2020 election. Uh, this is obviously a minor, minor subset of, of that 70 million who decided, hey, I'll take a ride. There's the, this this investor deck, I want to say, I want to name one thing to laugh at and then one thing we can talk about, which we might not want to laugh at. But the one thing we need to laugh at, I think, is this deck. And in your in your piece, you say that this whole SPAC deal TMTG has stinker written all over it. Both of us have seen a lot of pitch decks uh, in our time, been in a lot of pitch meetings. There's nothing in this 22 page pitch deck that provides any kind of like revenue ramp or product. It literally just says at the end of the day, we're going to compete with all of these huge historic brands and streamers and tech companies from Amazon to Twitter to CNN to NBC but it doesn't say how. And then there's a there's a page. The second to last page of the deck says history of President Trump's entertainment success. And then it's just a bunch of like clips about how The Apprentice did well in the ratings. It's not it doesn't talk about how he plans to build a company. I mean, it can't be stressed enough that this SPAC made a lot of money in the last week with nothing at all underpinning it. I mean, it is it is crazy. I mean, it's as I say in the piece, it's, it could very well be the ultimate meme stock. I mean, there's except even it's it's even beyond meme, BM, beyond <laughs> meme, because meme stocks, whether it's AMC or GameStop or Hertz, there's an underlying business that's been around for a long time that people just whatever you know got excited about on Reddit and decided that they would just either try to squeeze the shorts or, you know, just have fun with it and see how much money they could make by, by driving it, driving up the price. By SPAC standards, this is ringing the bottom of the bathtub. I mean, because even by SPAC standards, okay, which is a very, very low bar, Peter, you have to, to understand. One of the benefits of SPACs is that instead of it being a traditional securities offering where you really can't talk about your projections. You can give EPS projections, but you can't get into detailed P&Ls. Uh, this is a merger, a merger between an existing public company and a private company. In, the, in this circumstances, it was with these kinds of mergers, you can share your ridiculous projections and make a case, whether it's Lordstown Motors or some other electric car uh, or truck company or space company, whatever it is, satellite company, you know, whatever they are, there is at least something, operations, uh, additional capital that has already been invested uh, that you can show to prospective investors so that they can at least see and laugh at probably (laughs) uh, these projections. And, and, you know, we've seen repeatedly uh, where, uh, uh, the projections are made. Uh, the SPAC gets announced. The merger gets announced. The, mer- the SPAC trades up, and then when reality sets in, the stock, of course, fades down. Uh, we've seen that a little bit already because 
the stock traded up to 175 and now is down at, at 90. But in the case of this Donald Trump SPAC, in keeping with most things Donald Trump, there's it's, it's vaporware. There's nothing. There's no company. There's no projections. You know, there's obviously no track record to build on. You know, in the last page, he talks about adjusted EBITDA, which is, of course, a red flag to, to any serious investor to know that uh, that, that he's already going to be playing games with the projections that he hasn't even provided. Uh, so this outspacks a SPAC. This is beyond meme. This is the stinkiest thing. Uh, that th- th- there's nothing. There is literally nothing but Donald Trump hot air, which we are now specialists in. All of us in this country, we are specialists in Donald Trump hot air, and and you know people would be smart to just avoid it. But you know you, you try to explain that to people, and they say, well, well, look what happened. The stock went from ten to one seventy five. You know, even if it's down to ninety, look, I've just I've just, you know, made 10 times my money. What have you done sitting on your hands and your butt, you know, complaining all the time about Donald Trump? I mean, if you look at the the current trade price of uh, and, and what we're taping this in the middle of the week, but the, the current trading price for Digital World Acquisition Corp is like 59 bucks, which is more than Coca-Cola and Pfizer. And it's just ridiculous that these companies that actually have been doing business and creating products for years are you know <laughs> as valuable i guess those are there's different volume there obviously but it's just like well it, I'm, glad, it I'm glad you brought up today's i.e today's uh, you know tuesdays well you know obviously we're taping it before it's aired but you know t- this is perfect okay thank you for bringing this up because i was talking about 90 bucks because i looked at it yesterday i hadn't looked at it today today it's 59 bucks so today it's down 30 percent so even if you'd bought it at 90 yesterday, you've lost 30% of your money. That is real money that people are losing. If you bought it late last week for $175 a share, now it's down to 59, you've lost you know, two thirds of your money or more. So, I mean, in five days, yes, this thing is up from $10 to $59. That's up 488%. So you could say, okay, well, if I bought it at 10, you know, I've made you know, nearly five times my money. But literally, if you bought it in the aftermarket, if you bought it after the deal was announced, you know, you've, you know, and if you bought it yesterday, you've lost 30% of your money today. How is that going to make you feel? Does that make you feel like Donald Trump is the general that you want to follow into this war against Netflix and Disney and, and Amazon and Apple, two of which at least are trillion dollar companies? Uh, this, this is, a total pipsqueak. It, I'm telling you, before this thing, before long, this DWAC is going to be hovering around ten dollars a share again. And, and and there's a real risk if that happens that the shareholders say, "Forget it, we want our money back," and this deal never happens. My money is on the fact that this deal never happens and was it is just like, uh, you know, a full of a full. You know, the, the reality comes full circle, and you know. The joke is on the people who bought, uh, you know, late last week. This is the last thing I want to ask you. And and you mentioned, I mentioned rather, there might be something here not to sniff at, which is something you brought up. Does this give Donald Trump a sudden, you know, injection of cash, shares, value, whatever, 
with which he can then turn around and use to buy other perhaps publicly traded media companies? Can he use this as a way into building an actual media slash tech, maybe not empire, but company? Is that is all of that something that Donald Trump can do now that, um, you know, he is sitting on this supposedly valuable SPAC slash media tech company? Uh, Peter, I think it's important to remind people that he, he hasn't got anything yet. He, he's got a proposed merger. OK, he's got a PR stunt. That's what he has right now. He, they, they, they've put together a little website. They've put, put together a little pathetic deck. Uh, OK, they've made their announcement. Mr. Orlando has, you know, made his statement in the PR press release. So he's got absolutely nothing at the moment. Now, it takes, you know, he's got to go through the SEC. The SEC could stop this at any moment, by the way, you know, and by the way, it's it's Gary Gensler's SEC. If I were Donald Trump, I would not want to be uh, trying to pull off this kind of scam uh, at Gary Gensler's SEC. But, you know, he might get that far. He's got to put together, you know, a prospectus and explain to people what it is that, that they're doing. And then there's this shareholder vote. Uh, if the stock is trading near 10 or below 10 again, guess what? Uh, the shareholder is going to demand that they're 10, they get $10 back plus interest. If it's trading above $10, then he's got a fighting chance. And that would still be you know months from now before that closes. It would literally be months. Uh, even if it were to close, it would be months before he can get his hands on this $293 million dollars. Uh, which isn't going to go very far in terms of uh, allowing him to build something to compete against Netflix uh, and Disney. Uh, the stock of the SPAC, I suppose, at some point could be used to buy other companies. But I mean, really? I, I mean, who's he going to buy? He doesn't, he can't buy, you know, he just doesn't have the firepower at the moment with this thing. I mean, obviously, if you were a real businessman with real experience in the media and was trying to do this and had a real operator uh, and somebody who knew what they were doing and more capital, I suppose there's a fighting chance that one day down the line, uh, you know, I mean, we, we, you know, as, as, as Matt knows, Matt Baloney knows, I mean, we've got, you know, Viacom CBS, which is a $30 billion company that's been around for, you know, 50, 60 years is floundering against Netflix, Disney, Apple, Amazon. And uh, the idea that this ridiculous SPAC with nothing more than vaporware and a pathetic PowerPoint presentation is going to compete against the wealthiest companies on, on the face of the earth is beyond ridiculous. So... I would encourage everyone who has watched Silicon Valley to read the deck and ponder how the Donald Trump and his minions would create a tech stack to compete with Google Cloud, Amazon Web Services and Stripe. <laughs> it's it's a sitcom that writes itself. And thanks to our conversation here, Bill, I will not be calling my financial advisor and asking to go long on DWAC. So thank you for your advice. <laughs> well, my pleasure. Uh, you know, as Kurt Anderson has said repeatedly, Donald Trump is the greatest self-parodist 
ever to come along in American history. And he continues to just, you know, deliver for, for journalists everywhere. So thank you, Donald. All right. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Internet, so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck, except no substitutes. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. I'm Peter Hamby, and I'll see you next week.